This month on Security Management Highlights. And this was all designed, you know, to prevent individuals or groups from obtaining chemicals that could be used to cause an explosion or hurt people. A U.S. program designed to safeguard dangerous chemicals needs reauthorization by Congress in the next year. But will they act to extend the CFATS program? Associate Editor Megan Gates tells us more. The biggest weakness of this ubiquitous system is that its signal is sent from a constellation of 31 aging satellites. GPS signals are relied upon the world over, but experts say the infrastructure that supports them is aging and at risk of attack. National Security Editor Lily Chapa is here to explain. Plus, what it took for two men at the Grant County Public Utilities Department to get a new drone program off the ground. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. Stakeholders say a U.S. program to improve security at chemical facilities is extremely effective. But will Congress act to continue the program? Associate Editor Megan Gates gives us the latest on CFATS. Everyone loves a good story, and your article starts out with a compelling example of why protecting dangerous chemicals is so important. It happened in Crosby, Texas, and a chemical plant there lost power during Hurricane Harvey in 2017. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so this is a great story and shows just how important preparation is prior to a major weather event. So Arkema, a chemical manufacturer, they had seen the predictions for Hurricane Harvey, and they decided before Harvey made landfall that they were actually going to shut down their plant in Crosby, Texas. And so the plant ended up losing power. They got over 40 inches of rain, which flooded their backup generators. And while they had shut down the plant, 11 people stayed on to monitor the situation because the plant had organic peroxides stored there. And so these peroxides, they had to be kept at a low temperature to keep them stable, to prevent them from degrading, which could ultimately lead to an explosion. And so when the plant lost power, and then when the backup generators started to fail, they had to create a new plan. So they ended up transferring these chemicals uh, with their 11-person crew who was on the ground to diesel-powered refrigerated containers to continue to monitor them and try and stabilize them. But then they ultimately saw that these containers were still not keeping the chemicals cool enough. So they made the decision to evacuate the plant and the 1.5-mile radius around it just to be on the safe side. So they took those 11 people out of the situation. They they also brought in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and officials from the state of Texas to keep an eye on the situation. When it became apparent that these chemicals were starting to really degrade, they were worried about an uncontained explosion happening. So they made the decision to ignite the containers that the chemicals were stored in to create a controlled blast to control the situation, to make sure that nobody was hurt, and that ultimately no more damage than necessary had to occur. And as you write, this situation shows just how critical it is to safeguard these materials to protect against everything from a power outage like the one at Crosby to a possible terror attack. So... What steps has the U.S. Department of Homeland Security taken to safeguard these chemicals? Obviously, that is a concern for them and something that they want to spearhead. The Department of Homeland Security, DHS for short, one of their main programs was actually created in 2007. Congress passed the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Appropriations Act. In that act, it required DHS to create regulations that established risk-based performance standards for chemical facilities that present high levels of risk. 
And so DHS also was mandated to subject these facilities to vulnerability assessments and require them to develop and implement site security plans. And this was all designed you know, to prevent individuals or groups from obtaining chemicals that could be used to cause an explosion or hurt people in an act of terrorism. And so out of that mandate from that act came the Chemical Facility Anti-Terrorism Standards Program, CFATS. And what CFATS does is it identifies and regulates facilities that possess chemicals of interest at specific concentrations and quantities. All these chemicals are listed in Appendix A of the CFATS regulation. There are more than 300 chemicals that are included, along with their screening threshold quantities, and they're categorized into three security issues, release, theft or diversion, and sabotage. Facilities that meet or exceed the screening threshold quantities for chemicals of interest, they are required to report um, their chemical possessions to DHS via what's called a top screen questionnaire. DHS then you know, has a system that determines you know, what facilities will be regulated, tier one, two, three, and four, with tier one being the highest security threat. Once that's completed, these facilities have to submit a security vulnerability assessment and a site security plan that addresses those vulnerabilities, or they can submit an alternative security plan. They then work with officials through the CFATS program to get that plan approved, and then the facility has to implement that plan, and then CFATS goes and inspects them to make sure that they're doing what they said they were going to do. Now, some members of Congress had concerns about the effectiveness of the CFATS program. And when they passed an act in 2014 to reauthorize CFATS, the legislation created more standards for chemical facilities. Can you explain what those updates were? Yeah, so in the lead up to the reauthorization in 2014, there was a lot of concern because CFATS had been in existence for a while and it actually hadn't approved any site security plans up to that point. So there was a lot of concern in Congress about the length of time it was taking, um, you know, for facilities to submit their plan, then for CFATS to go over the plan and approve it before ever even leading to the implementation process. So what they did in the reauthorization was Congress allowed CFATS to create an expedited approval program uh, to sort of speed up that process for tier three and tier four facilities. These are the lower risk chemical facility plants. And so that allows DHS to identify specific security measures that meet the risk-based performance standards of CFATS that facilities have to implement to be compliant. And this was actually interesting because, so this expedited approval program was implemented in 2015. But by April 2017, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, they did an audit, a report on the program, and they found out that only two of 2,496 eligible facilities were using it. Now, recently, they've moved up to 16 facilities are using the expedited approval program. And one of the reasons that they found out that so few facilities were using it was because of the timing of when it was introduced, um, that it was actually introduced after a lot of facilities had already submitted their plans to CFATS, so they were already in the system to be approved or working with them to get them approved and then implemented. So in the future, based on my interviews, you know, people said that they think that more facilities will use the expedited approval program as they have to submit new plans, but based on where they were historically, it just didn't make sense to do that. So a deadline is coming up, January 2019, for Congress to reauthorize the CFATS program. What does the future of CFATS look like? Do you think that Congress will take that step? Yeah, based on my interviews, everyone seemed optimistic that Congress would reauthorize the program. CFATS since the 2014 reauthorization has made a lot of strides in streamlining the program. So it's really cut down on the amount of time it actually takes to complete the CFATS process. 
which means they've eliminated their backlog of site inspections and approval plans. So now they're just focused mainly on the compliance factor. So they've reduced like their top screen time by 50% down to six hours. The security vulnerability assessment time from 65 hours to 2.5 hours and the time it takes to complete the site security plans from 225 hours to 20 hours. So I spoke to the acting director, Amy Graydon from DHS, and she said that she feels that CFATs, they've demonstrated that they're a smart regulatory program and that they look for efficiencies to make the program even more efficient and effective, that they're incorporating, you know, lessons that they've learned from the past. So they're optimistic that Congress will reauthorize the program before it runs out January 2019. Thank you for stopping by and explaining more about safeguarding these chemical facilities, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. The Global Positioning System, or GPS, is integral to everything from communications and navigation to timing applications and critical infrastructure technologies. But GPS is increasingly being targeted by bad actors, and experts are racing to figure out how to strengthen the signal. National Security Editor Lily Chapa is here to tell us more. Your column begins with a scenario about the U.S. military possibly training its pilots to fly in conditions where GPS signals are inaccurate or non-existent. Why would they need to train for such a situation? And tell us a little bit more about GPS technology in general. Sure. So the Air Force has been conducting aerial war games for more than 40 years. But these so-called red flag exercises were different this year for a couple of reasons. First, it's the largest exercise in red flag history but they also blocked GPS signal in parts of Nevada where the exercises would be taking place. While the specifics of red flag events are kept under wraps, the public was made aware of the GPS block due to notifications that they might experience outages. This led to the conclusion that the Air Force wants its pilots to be able to operate in environments without GPS. Personally, I heavily rely on GPS to give me direction to get around town, but it's also critical for communications, time measurements, and there's even an encrypted version used by the military for its own location and navigation needs. Definitely. I think we're all pretty reliant on GPS, and like you said, it has some much larger applications as well. But despite this widespread use, you say that the GPS signal is actually inherently weak. I was very surprised to learn that, making it susceptible to outside interference. Give us examples of what this problem might look like in a real-life illustration. Yeah, the biggest weakness of this ubiquitous system is that its signal is sent from a constellation of 31 aging satellites down to civilian and military receivers or even our cell phones. And as more satellites are launched and instances of space weather increase, it's not unlikely that we'll start seeing more GPS outages. Bad actors can even interfere with the signal as well. So it definitely makes sense that the Air Force is training to operate without it. One type of GPS interference is called spoofing, which means someone sends a false signal, and there's also blocking or jamming the signal. There have been several recent instances of these, such as the time a guy bought a GPS jammer so his boss couldn't see where he was driving the company car, but ended up accidentally blocking signals from reaching the air traffic controller when he drove too close to an airport. There was also an instance when a routine equipment switch caused a 13 microsecond timing error for some of the GPS satellites, and that triggered 12 hours of confusion for computers and networks worldwide. There's also a more malevolent instance of GPS spoofing, which has never been confirmed but is widely suspected. 
I don't know if you remember when a U.S. Navy ship strayed into Iranian waters in 2016 and the sailors were briefly taken captive. Well, the incident was blamed on navigation errors, but it's suspected that Iran may have spoofed the signal and steered the ship astray to make a statement. Now, these are examples of more isolated GPS blocking or jamming. What would a widespread GPS outage look like? That's a great question, Holly, and one we can't really answer because it hasn't happened yet. But based on smaller outages, we can make some guesses. The U.S. government calls GPS a single point of failure for critical infrastructure. And as of right now, there's no backup if it goes down. So say a terrorist plants a high-powered GPS jammer hidden in a suitcase in the middle of a big city. Transportation would probably be the first system visibly affected, which could quickly impact an entire metropolitan area. Traffic lights will become desynchronized and GPS-based apps will no longer function creating distracted and dangerous driving conditions. Airplanes and other forms of mass transportation will have to slow down or alter their routes to stay in contact with people who can keep them on course. Package delivery routes, as well as land, sea, and air-based supply chain operations will definitely be disrupted. All forms of transportation will be forced to carry less capacity in the area. Countless systems that rely on GPS's perfectly synchronized timing which include data networks, financial activities, the electric grid, and other utilities, will slowly become out of sync, causing system failures. And when those types of networks fall apart, they will lead to cascading failures, the likes of which are not really known. And that's just the civilian side of things. The military GPS is a whole other story. Absolutely. That's quite a frightening scenario. So as you write, there are some organizations out there that want to counteract the possibility of that happening. Bodies like the Resilient Navigation and Timing Foundation. What are they and other groups doing to work on protecting GPS? And what, if anything, is the U.S. government doing? There's definitely some low-hanging fruit for strengthening this aspect of our infrastructure. But government and businesses are pretty slow to act on it which is where these advocacy organizations come in play. They work to establish best practices, such as updating GPS receiver security and establishing contingency operations. Much like other facets of security, these organizations fear no action will be taken until a widespread outage occurs. The government also has a program to replace some of its aging GPS satellites, but that's already encountered many delays. Yes, replacing aging infrastructure is a problem on Earth and apparently above the Earth. Thank you so much for stopping by, Lily. Thanks, Holly. Finally, the use of drones for emergency security or risk management purposes is steadily growing. One public utilities department who started its own drone program shared their story with security management, offering best practices and lessons learned. Hi, gentlemen. Welcome to the program, and please introduce yourself for our listeners. Hi, I'm Nick Weber. I'm the security manager at Grant Public Utility District out in Washington State. Hi, I'm George Hainer. I'm the contracted guard force manager for Grant County PUD. So let's start out with the origins of the drone program. What was the impetus for starting it? So we started it when we actually had an incident. There's an area that we are responsible for some of the protection of, but it's a residential area that predates our, our infrastructure in the area. And there's about once every six to 12 months, we end up with some issues that generally substance related, somebody's on whatever and gets a little out of control. In this particular one, person was on some sort of controlled substance and firing weapons. Our contracted guard on the patrol went to investigate and drove almost right into the scene in the process of doing their assessment. Um, And we 
sat down and said, how can we do this better? How can we get better recording of incidents, things we can hold on to for evidence if need be? And how can we protect our people better? And at about the same time, we'd attended a WEC physical security work group meeting where there was a demonstration on some counter drone technology. But we looked at it and said, this looks like this someone might be able to use as a way to extend our ability to assess and provide initial response to a potential security incident while protecting our people by letting them have a little more standoff. Then as we got to talking more and more about it, most of our security department has recent military experience and we've used this in combat. So this looked like a natural progression to bring UAS or drones into our security to help improve our ability to conduct surveillance, reconnaissance, and gather information. And in addition, we got a few places where we cover both sides of the Columbia River with limited crossing points. There's really only one public crossing area in our entire 50 miles or so of river we're responsible for. There may be a case where we'd have a guard or a person literally a mile line of sight from where something's happening, but it had taken an hour to drive around to make an assessment. So in theory, we're going to launch the drone. The guard can go over there, do an assessment with the drone, and then make a more informed decision on whether they can respond, whether it's something we can turn over to some of our facilities folks, just go and clean up a mess, or if it's something we need to call 911 and potentially eventually get to the point where we can feed them the drone feed and have a, a law enforcement response. So you've told us a little bit about getting the program going, but surely you ran into some challenges along the way. What were some of those and how did you address them? Some of the earliest challenges were just the optics internally and concern of what the public and our customers would think of us going out and buying what were essentially hobby-level drones, but higher-end ones. We bought three drones and all the associated pieces of it took us to about $7,000. And the, the internal perception was, why are you going out and buying toys? That was kind of the the initial piece. We had to get some people over that initial hurdle that this was a tool and it really was going to be a significant increase in our efficiency by doing this and also our ability to to better capture evidence if need be. So that was a big piece of it. And then as we went further up the chain, the more and more we had to do that to uh, come back to those same things, just addressing the getting people beyond the idea that drones are a toy that really is a tool and that we didn't necessarily for our needs need to go out and buy the $20,000 drone, we could get what we needed with hobby level stuff just because we're not necessarily looking for high definition thermal optics that a lot of the utilities are using. We also took it as an opportunity to say, look, our line departments, our safety folks, our public affairs have all considered this. Nobody's really kind of bitten it off yet. So we'll be the guinea pig for the entire company. We'll start it. We'll come out. We'll do demonstrations. We'll support our GIS folks as well, just to show we'll be the proof of concept for the entire company. So that was how we got a lot of things rolling and got some of our operations folks on board with it. We also ran into some issues because we are heavily union in our company with IBEW of does the drone become a union task that only certain employees can do? And we had to work through our our business manager at the local office there to reach the determination that it really depends on what we were doing with the drone. So if we were doing work that was normally done by a union electrician, then that needed to be completed by a union electrician, whether they were piloting or just standing there observing that camera feed as we got it through. But if we were using it to capture imagery to update security plans or for patrols, then that was clearly not a union task. So working through a lot of those things on the front end really helped us to avoid some of those later on issues of somebody having a complaint about our drones being in the wrong space or somebody kind of the the spying kind of thing. There were some concerns around that early on. We put those to to rest pretty clearly with some controls and we do audits on our our drones and say, how many times did it fly? Where did it fly? Why was 
is it used, and all that's documented in our security operations center. Every time we launch a flight, it has to be pre-approved, and the flight plan has to be filed with our security department. So there's no chance of somebody throwing it up and going in and checking on an employee or somebody else, one of our customers. We've got it pretty well documented when those fly. And then also heading off just the labor management piece with the union was a pretty big issue because a lot of times, generally with the union, you can stop an issue early on with uh, a little bit of effort. But if it goes into the grievance process, it becomes hours upon hours of arguing and political infighting, and it's just a mess. So getting ahead of those things was pretty huge for us. Yeah, and I'd say the getting the written procedures down and getting the other departments involved, that's what really pushed us over the edge. One of the most critical aspects of establishing your program was making sure that you were within FAA regulation. What is that process like getting approved, and what can people expect who might also be going through similar steps? We're still in the process of getting all of our approvals done through the FAA. They have two avenues you can go down as a commercial entity, and that's to get a certificate of authorization through them to self-certify your pilots and use the drones to complete certain tasks. Right now, we just had another meeting yesterday, and it's not looking like we're going to be able to use that to go down. So we have to go down the avenue of getting everybody who's going to use it uh, Part 107 qualified and licensed through the FAA to operate them. And that's something we always thought was going to be kind of the end state of our attempts to work with the FAA, but uh, we were hoping it wasn't going to be that way. But I already got certified Part 107 through the FAA, so that's what got us off the ground and has enabled us to start using the drones for all those departmental jobs and a couple of our security response plans that we're using imagery from the drones for. But it's kind of a pain. We have close ties with our county sheriff's department, and they have a certificate of authorization, and they're kind of the ones that put us onto it to use it for law enforcement investigations and rescue. And it, it took them six months, and we're about three, four months into the process, and now we're finding out we might not even be able to do it. So, George, are you saying the program is just delayed? And what is Part 107? So it's going to be just a longer process of getting all the guards. We have about four guards that would be using this to enhance their patrol capabilities and their response times the way Nick was talking about. And it's just going to take a little bit longer. We're going to have to run them through a uh, educational program, which was already the plan, but then they will also have to take and pass that FAA exam to be able to operate them for those security uses. It's just a, a little delay. Uh, part 107 is the part governing commercial use of unmanned aircraft systems. So anybody can get a certificate in it. If you're already a pilot, it's pretty easy. You take an online course and you just have your Part 107 certificate added to your whatever license you already had. But if you are not a current pilot, you have to pass the FAA aeronautical knowledge test which is pretty hard if you don't have never done anything with planes. It's a lot of airspace information, how do you use sectional charts, and all the laws governing the UAS that the FAA currently has. In the story, you talk about some of the ways in which the drone program has already benefited the department. Can you share some of those with us? I'd say one of the, the biggest ones is the ability to get almost real-time imagery into our response plans. That's something that uh, George and one of his counterparts, King, on our guard force been working on is developing detailed response plans for all of our critical infrastructure sites, our electric substations, and doing those in concert with the first responders. In our particular area, Google Earth is, what, George, three, four years behind? Yeah, between yeah, three and four, and I think we just recently got an update. Yeah. In the last eight 
18 months, I believe, we've either built or significantly redesigned seven of our electric substations. So that's a lot of information that's not available via online aerial imagery. So being able to have that updated and share it with the first response agencies is huge, not only from the security side, but also the resilience response and the safety of that response effort if there is an incident out at one of those sites. That's been the biggest one directly for our department. The other ones, and George can talk a little more specifically about projects we've been doing to support others, but as you mentioned earlier, security is a support function at Grant PUD. We're not the primary effort for the company, so anything we can do to continue to show our value to the organization has really helped, and, and George has been great with dam safety and recreation and even starting to get in with our safety department public affairs. George, you want to talk about any of the specific stuff you've been doing there? So I got a couple of projects in the works right now. We are trying out a software to track progress of a construction project, a big ticket construction project over time. And that's been a little bit rough working with some new technology, new software, but it's definitely an improvement. It gives a lot of uh, capabilities to our engineers that are overseeing that project. And then with our recreation department, they are redesigning their online presence uh, to include interactive maps. And I've already provided them with some higher resolution aerial imagery that they're going to use. And the next step is we're going to do flybys of all the recreation areas to provide a video that everybody, all of our visitors can uh, watch to see what the recreation areas really look like and if it's someone, something they're interested in coming to visit. And then building the security response plans is still in the works. So is there any advice you guys would like to add for anyone out there who might be thinking about starting their own drone program at their own organization? I would say that most of the advice for anybody who's looking to, to start it is don't be afraid of the technology, but make sure you've, you've run to ground all of your policies, procedures, figured out how you're going to handle the, the FAA requirements, and really coordinate it with stakeholders. I think it's a great opportunity for security managers, security leadership to increase their value to an organization, which I think is something we all fight for every day is why we need to be there. In most cases, security is, is a cost center. We're not driving revenue. So anything you can do to increase that value to the organization will help your profile overall as your department. So I would say uh, getting the buy-in from the other departments, letting them know what's going on after you got the procedures, but before you buy the equipment, kind of having their buy-in a little bit of, having them contribute a little bit of money so you can get the equipment that you need. That's one of the big things that it's hard to find the cheap equipment that still does what you want it to do. Those are both great pieces of advice. Thanks once again for sharing your story with us. Thank you very much, Holly, for the opportunity to talk about our program. I think it's, it's a, we're really excited about it. It's a great opportunity to hopefully share with others. I look forward to being able to keep you guys updated on where we go from here. That does it for this month's podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud, and be sure to tune in throughout the month for bonus material. Thanks so much for joining. Bye-bye.